Hi everyone, welcome to the Absolute Jiu-Jitsu Debate. We discuss using ideas from sports science and other performance sports to improve how we train and develop in Jiu-Jitsu. All of this was originally released on video, where we often put graphics and diagrams over the talking heads. So if you want the full experience, check us out by searching Absolute MMA St Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. Otherwise, enjoy the show. I'm here with physiotherapist and ADCC competitor Livia Giles and strength and conditioning coach Ben King, discussing strength conditioning for Jiu-Jitsu. In the last video, we answered questions sent to us on Instagram with a specific focus on the recreational athlete. Now we're going to jump right back into the discussion and continue where we left off. So Ben, another key question that came up time and time again, in fact, something I think is really important is that, you know, we've talked about the fact that people are probably, they're doing jiu-jitsu and they want to start doing strength and conditioning or something like that. They're doing it because they want to help their, their jiu-jitsu, right? And, and that's quite different, as I talked about before, from, from, their, uh, from just doing working out just to stay in shape or to have you know, a good-looking body or whatever it is. So how specific do they need to get in their strength conditioning in order to improve their performance in jiu-jitsu? Is there stuff that's specifically important to do um, that will help your jiu-jitsu more and therefore is more specific? So is there like... Uh, strength training for jiu-jitsu that, that, that becomes important if you're a recreational athlete? I think, yes, you should be considering the specificity for your sport if that's your, if that's your goal and it connects back to what you're, uh, what you're intending to do with your either career or with your training. Um, and it reflects back, you know, it reflects back to who you are as an individual and what the demands are of the sport. Um, I would just be careful. This is an area where I think you know, people are, it can be not as considered and it's easy to think you're being specific. Um, but I think we always have to obey the laws of, of physiology and of the human body. So when you're being specific, um, it may not necessarily be replicating the movements and abilities that you see in jiu-jitsu. So, you know, passing guard or, or, or doing something, you know, athletic with a band around your waist in the active skill I, I don't think that's the best uh, spend of your energy. Um, perhaps, you know, if you work on the skill itself and the physical quality itself is then you'll be able to enact that in the actual skill. So I think there's certainly a time and place for specific exercises, but if they come at the cost of more general physical underpinning developments, um, that's where people can be led astray. So a useful model um, by Yuri Verkashensky, like kind of the one of the forefathers or, you know, Matt Rushmore of, of SNC and sports sciences, the, the concept of dynamic correspondence. And it's, it's gives you a lens to look at a specific movement or a demand of the sport and then start to think about the physical qualities that, that underpin that. So put simply, like it's a regime of muscular works. What, what contraction types are they feeling? And given jiu-jitsu, they'll often be isometric, um, so still and stiff positions. What are the range of motions being uh, felt by different joints? What are the muscle groups involved? in those different joints um what is the magnitude of force and effort um and then where what in what range do you need to be really powerful in so that gives you a scope to look across and this is obviously comes from you know track and field backgrounds and um you know other sports but i, I still think you can apply that model to jiu-jitsu and then get a better understanding of where and how you can overload um particularly when viewing the muscles that get worked and what range of motion they get worked in. If you get strong in those positions and then let the skill take care of itself, like in essence, lifting is a skill in and of itself. There's technique that goes into that. There's ability that goes into that just as there is in jiu-jitsu. So when you start to make that skill, when you get um, really, really fancy with your skill, it's hard to develop the physical underpinning. It, it's, 
It's a motor neuron. It's a, it's a motor skill, I should say. Um, and it's executing in a specific context. You're reacting to your partner. There's, uh, there's a lot of things going on that go into that performance. So in terms of getting specific with that stuff, I wouldn't be uh, kind of delving into that world. But you can be specific for the sport by following the laws I've just listed. And if we go back to earlier in the podcast where I talk about the, the muscle groups that are involved, that's when you can get strength training for, for jiu-jitsu. Um, but it's obviously relevant to the athlete and the demands of the sport. Um, the second thing I would point out is there's different times, uh, you know, different times for different things. So if you're just outside of a competition, yeah, maybe your training looks very specific. You know, you're only doing a couple little things, um, but for every increase or every degree of increase in specificity, you're going to reduce the ability to uh, reduce the ability to overload. So, uh, you know, maybe just after competition, you don't have another competition for another nine months. That's when you can go super general. Your training will look very different to what it is um, that you're competing. Um, maybe you're working on something, a skill that you haven't learned yet, or maybe you're delving more into wrestling or other areas of combat. That's when you can be more general in your training. But if you're just outside of competition, um, that's where you might be, you know, very specific. And, you know, as we go through the programs later with Liv, we will see that as we got closer and closer to comp, we had to make allowances for more specific training, uh, which was going to see a more short-term result. But certainly, yeah, to put it simply, you don't have to get super specific. You can use the basics and do them really, really well for a really long time. But there are times that you can tilt uh, S&C towards being more specific jiu-jitsu. What do you think, Liv? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I think we need to definitely reiterate uh, that specificity doesn't mean like putting a weight vest on and doing jiu-jitsu drills. That, that's not necessarily, or it will probably make you stronger, but it's not necessarily the best use of your time. Um, I think you have to keep coming back to what your goals are and, and how to achieve those goals. And then it becomes pretty clear. So where we have to get specific is knowing what ranges we're working in. Like, for example, we can do hamstring rehab or really common ACL. We have to keep the hamstring really, really strong. Um, and the way I prescribe exercises for my patients might be a little bit different to if you're a runner to a jiu-jitsu athlete uh, with Jiu-jitsu, you might have to get very specific in the ranges you're trying to get better, and that might be in the later stage of rehab. We tend to use our hamstrings in that inner range, so actually getting on the hamstring curl and, and curling it all the way in, which a lot of people in the mainstream fitness industry say is completely non-functional. But if you're a football player or if you're, you know, a long-distance runner, you probably are going to be working those outer, outer ranges. So I think specificity and how specific you get to training, it really depends what you're trying to work. Uh, same, you know, in the muscles used in jiu-jitsu, your, your adductors might have to be very strong and it might not be um, something that's necessary for other athletes. Uh, but I, again, working as a physio, I... I really look at the patient and, and I look who comes to me because sometimes if you give someone a complicated move and it might be something that I think it's quite simple, if you give it to them and they don't do it well, they come back in two weeks and they haven't done the exercise well because they forgot how to do it. There's too many cues or it's a skill that's too complicated to learn um, and they don't actually get the benefit and we can't move on and improve. Um, so I think if it's someone who's just started, keep it relatively simple and don't confuse the specifics. Don't don't confuse of what it is you're trying to work. Be specific in your ranges, but you don't have to recreate jiu-jitsu movement with a weight. 
Yeah, Liv, I think that's that point at the end is the, the key thing. This topic of specificity is probably like, you know, if you were going to do a, a master's in strength and conditioning, you'd probably spend a whole semester or something discussing this topic. You know, you could go on and on about it forever. As a recreational athlete or someone coming to the sport, when you think about it being specific, you're probably thinking about incorporating jiu-jitsu movements into your strength and conditioning. That's probably what you're thinking about straight away. And um, what I will say there is that that, that is a type of uh, activity called a specific strength exercise. Okay, you see them a lot in certain types of sports, um, and, and in some sports they're more important than in, in others. Um, I'm not saying that they're that you can't do them. But what I'm saying is that when you start uh, out uh, as a, as a practitioner, as uh, someone trying to train uh, SNC for jujitsu, you don't need to do that stuff. It, it isn't going to give you the the return that you want quickly. Um, I'm not saying you can't use it in certain circumstances because it can be useful. But I would start off by doing the basic things. If you look at high-performance athletes, the two things that they do is one is all high-performance athletes do the basics excellently. And that means mm. developing strength through the ranges of motion that, that they need. The second thing that they do is they also work on what we call marginal gains. So the small areas that will give them that advantage over their competitors. As a recreational athlete, you're not going to get those small advantages because you're only training three times a week, let's say, for jiu-jitsu. So what you want to do is do the fundamentals really good, which means that after you've been doing S&C for a couple of years, you want to look like you go into the gym, you know exactly what you're doing, you're doing good technique, not that you're going to do some special exercise specifically for jiu-jitsu. You know, and, and that's the that's the mistake that people will make. They'll go, oh, I'm doing jujitsu. I need to do some very specific exercises. I need to like maybe do some clever uh, funky stuff with hip bridges or I need to do some clever uh, grip work, etc. Probably to start with, that's not what you need to do. Probably you just need to start with the, the simple, the simple stuff. OK, so which is all the stuff, the compound exercises that Ben was Ben was talking about uh, earlier. If you're going in and you're putting weight vests on and you're, and you're trying to replicate um, movement patterns from jiu-jitsu just uh, understand that sports uh, like motor learning is very specific so for example shooting a basketball with a heavier basketball does not make you good at, at basketball uh, you know the weight of the ball is very very specific people that are good at shooting let's say a, a 10 kilogram ball into a basketball net are not the ones that are playing in the NBA although you can get very good at that okay it's the same with jiu-jitsu if you're good at doing a, a sports jiu-jitsu skill with a weight vest on doesn't mean you're going to be good at doing it without a weight vest on so don't get caught in that trap that, that would be the, uh, the the very the very first uh, thing that i would say having said that i'll be a little bit of a contrarian here which is that imagine that you're a jiu-jitsu player training in the gi and you're training for 16 hours a week do you need to do additional grip training for that the answer probably is probably not because you're doing 16 hours of basically gripping the gi all the time. If you were to add strength training exercises for your grip strength on top of that, you'd probably overload your grip. Whereas if you're someone who's only training twice a week for jiu-jitsu, then I'm not saying you have to do this, but it may be useful to have additional grip strength training in your program because then you're basically, you're not doing enough grip strength to get stronger, so you need to increase a little bit there. Similarly with, with hip bridging, if you're, do, if you're a professional jiu-jitsu athlete and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're rolling again for, let's say, uh, uh, an hour a day, seven days a week, that's seven hours of rolling, you're going to do a lot of hip bridging there in that against resistance. So maybe you wouldn't necessarily need to overload that in your physical preparation program. Whereas if you're only training two days a week, and you had the opportunity to go home and do some work away from the mats, it might be useful to actually do a little bit of hip bridging 
uh, activity, maybe with a little bit of load in there as well, because therefore you're, you know, you're increasing the amount of training you're doing without overloading that, that area. So this is where having a professional uh, person come in and help and work with you can actually be very beneficial. I've seen, and probably Liv, you've seen this, a lot of people that think, oh, you know, let's say uh, I'm a rock climber, so I'm going to train my grip as well as, uh, doing, uh, rock, uh, as, doing, as well as doing rock climbing. And then they overload their fingers and then they end up with serious injuries that are very, very difficult to, uh, difficult to improve. It's all about balancing all those little things together. And with specificity, uh, it, it, you know, this is an, an important factor to, to consider. Now, if we were talking for the S&C coaches, there's, there's lots of other details that we can go into. But maybe uh, in a future uh, podcast, uh, me and Ben can go over a little bit more about specificity there. But this is enough now. Um, for us to for us to know uh in terms of this discussion so ben another question was how often should i change what i'm doing so how often should they change the stimulus or the program one of the key principles of any strength and conditioning program will be variation so if you do the same adaptation is simply you adapt to what you're given so if you start a program there'll be a certain period where you know you decrease but then that'll start to feel normal so you either have to increase something in the program um, or you'll just remain at that same state. So variation is a natural occurrence within any, any training program. The two big considerations I would take in terms of changing your program, because what, you know, what is common, I think, is, is changing things week, every week after week after week or doing things kind of um, as, as they feel or what they see fit. If there's a new Instagram, uh, sorry, a new exercise they've seen on Instagram or online, they'll start doing that. So the more that you vary things around, perhaps the less adaptation you're getting because your body's feeling so many different things, it can't necessarily hold on to one thing and adapt to it. So the two considerations that I would take is one, uh, be practical and look at your competition uh, schedule. Uh, when are you competing? Um, plan around you know, trips, holidays, et cetera. And what are your windows? Like maybe there's a big open mat that your club has coming up. So that's maybe a, a, a chance that you can flip your program around or maybe there's a, an event that's being held or maybe there's a competition. So plan your windows of opportunity um, and, and see what your program can run until because I think holding on to a program and just making steady progress over a long period of time is certainly can be more powerful than flipping your program every week or every two weeks. Um, I guess then from a physiological, from a physical perspective, um, it depends on the person. Um, and on what kind of phase that you're looking at. Um, but certainly four to five weeks is advisable to change your program. And you could probably get away with, you know, extending that out to eight, up, up to eight to 10 weeks, as long as there's some element of progressive overload in the, in the program. So every week um, or every two weeks, there's some sort of progression happening. Again, it depends on the person. Um, but yeah, I'd probably be looking around every month. It's probably quite simple um, to change. Uh, or every two months. So uh, practically, um, that's where I had the one other consideration I would have is the less trained the person, the less they need to change the program. If they're just starting out, the very basics, I would almost hand them. Um, and I've done this with a couple of my junior athletes now is here's a template program. The only thing that you're going to change on this is making the weights heavier. And let's just do that until it stops happening. So there's a couple of programs out there that, that build that uh, principle in, like, you know, like a one by 20 program or an APRE program, but certainly I would be more inclined for a less trained athlete to give them something simple and repeatable for a very long time. Um, and that might be, you know, a year, year and a half worth, but you will see exponential gains. Um, but yeah, as, as with anything in strength and conditioning and training, it, it, it depends. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on that, Tom? 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you there, especially about the less trained person. Look, um, again, this is a difference between training um, specifically for something like uh, jiu-jitsu versus training because you want to you wanna look good, etc. If you go to a commercial gym, one of the key uh, things that they want to do is they want to keep you engaged, right? And it's also important psychologically for you to stay engaged. So if you go to a commercial gym, you'll probably see that they'll often change your exercises quite a lot. And that's because they want to keep it interesting for you. They want to keep you coming back, etc. If that isn't a factor, which probably it isn't so much, then you can just stay with the, the same exercises for a long period of time. And exactly what you said, actually, when I very first started strength training, I, there was a, maybe six, I mean, there was some stuff that happened right at the beginning because I wasn't sure exactly what I was doing. When I first started strength training, I found a program that I thought made sense to me and did make sense to me at the time. And I stuck with that basic program for, for almost 16 months. And all I did was I increased the amount of weight that I could lift in the main exercise that we're doing. Sometimes I changed the exercises slightly, but not a huge amount. And essentially what happened there was I went from, I'll give you an example in my deadlift. I went from starting off, I remember the very first time I ever did a deadlift, I lifted about 60 kilograms for 12 reps. And I found that incredibly difficult. And then all I did was I added 0.125 of a kilogram pretty much per session for those 16 months. And I got to the point where at the end, I was doing 20 single reps, 160 kilograms. And that was just adaptation over a course of 16 months. And I went from being relatively weak to being extremely strong in that 16-month period. And I didn't really change anything at all. You know, sometimes I changed the foot positioning on squats, for example. Sometimes I changed the hand positioning on bench press. Um, but nothing else changed throughout the program. And I had amazing gains, amazing physiological changes to myself. You know, I went from being uh, maybe um, 68 kilograms to being close to 80, uh, 80 kilograms. And all of that came about through, um, probably most of it came about through muscle mass gains and through strength gains. And that was because the age that I was and the fact that I progressively overloaded. So you don't have to change your session very often. Having said that, of course, people will get bored and um, you can change. My advice would be it takes, based on my experience, it takes most people 16 to 32 sessions to achieve adaptation to something. So if you're training uh, three times a week, 16 sessions is about five to six weeks, okay? So probably, um, you know, every four, every four to six weeks would be when you're going to change at the, at the minimum is what I would suggest. Anything above that would probably be for psychological reasons more than anything else. So that would be my suggestions. And I think this makes sense and it, it makes like your life quite easy because you can get a training program, you can stick with it for one month, two months, and then you can switch to something else and, and, you, can, and you can progress through like that. And that would be... Um, my key advice especially for a recreational athlete when you're an elite athlete there are some other things that we would talk about in terms of planning in terms of when in the year you're going to be and when your competitions are and therefore you're going to change to give you make sure you have the energy required to prepare for competition rather than the energy required to to lift heavier weights or whatever it is but for the recreational athlete if you changed your program every uh one month to two months i think that would that would make perfect sense So now that we've talked about a lot of things you can do, what are some of the biggest mistakes you can make when uh, training strength and conditioning? Um, I might let Ben answer that first. Sure. So I think the biggest mistake that you'll see with any strength and conditioning program uh, applied to a sporting context, but particularly, say, in jiu-jitsu, is losing losing sight of the main goal. So the main goal is to be better at jiu-jitsu and applying this new strength and conditioning program and all of a sudden like you see in good gains and, and all of a sudden it becomes your main focus. Perhaps it's not at the benefit of your jiu-jitsu training. 
And maybe it's an area of training that you want to follow up and, and you look at more weightlifting and powerlifting, that's fine. But then your goal is changing. So losing sight of the main goal is probably the biggest thing um, and making the main thing the main thing. Um, it, it, it is difficult to manage, um, but that's where you've got to kind of play that card right. Uh, the second big mistake is, and you know, you'll see later on, we'll go through some of the programs that we wrote for Live and how we applied them in a in a specific context. But that worked for Live in her specific context. So just because we did it that way doesn't mean it was right or wrong for every jiu-jitsu athlete. Um, so looking at any pro athlete and copying exactly what they do, just because they do it doesn't make it right for everyone. It just means that in in their specific context, in in their specific training environment. Um, and they're going to use that certain method. So, you know, on a practical level, there's some of the exercises we did with Liv due to equipment constraints. And there'll be other exercises that other athletes do uh, just because they enjoy it, they like it, they think it's beneficial, but it's not a it's not a rule across everyone that everything works for everyone. Um, quite often you're copying a pro athlete's program that they'll have supplemented perhaps by a whole support team. They'll have, you know, physio and massage and nutritionists looking after them. So if you're applying that, that method or that training in your own environment, um, you you know you're going to see some some issues predictably. Uh, Tom, do you have any thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I think it's exactly what you just said. I'll just I'll just pick up two different examples. The first thing is that you know you want to you need to do what, what is good for you, which isn't necessarily what's good for somebody else, right? And um, also depending on your where you are, whether or not this is the first time you started doing any kind of physical preparation in a weight room, for example. Um, you know, these things you need to think about. And I'll give you two really good examples are, one would you just brought up would be copying the program of other of other athletes. The other thing is to copy training programs from other eras. So a classic thing, when especially when you're SNC coach and you first start reading, you read all about all these amazing Eastern Bloc training methodologies, right? And you're like, wow, listen to these things. They sound fantastic. This is all science-based. It sounds like a great thing to do. And then you don't realize that their circumstances were very, very different. You know, they were working with athletes that had been training from when they were young, had good coaching, for example. They were very conditioned. There was also the fact that in the Eastern Bloc, there was a huge amount of steroid use. It was, uh, you know, it was ingrained into their system. And therefore, some of those methods, they're just not going to work when you apply them to a, a regular person in a Western setting with a job and all this other kind of stuff. So that would be the first thing. The second thing would be, again, for, for a similar reason, would be looking at, like, say, Instagram um, influencers or particularly bodybuilders and again you don't know the the circumstances around some of those guys so you know even if someone said they're not using steroids they may be using steroids as an example and therefore they're able to do a lot more training than you would be able to do it as as an individual athlete and this is um, actually the mistake that i made when i very first started uh, strength training when i was 19 years old so this was back in 1999 at the time i was playing basketball and um, i'm like one uh, i'm 180 tall about that and I was like, I'm not going to start strength training until I'm 19 years old because I don't want to, uh, to stunt my growth. You know, that was my belief back then because I didn't, I didn't know anything about it, right? So about six months before I turned 19, I started to research, oh, I'm going to start doing strength training when I'm 19 because by that time, you know, hopefully my growth will have continued. Uh, I'm going to go and look up like how to train, right? And I went on the internet because we had the internet back then. It was one of the new things. And I went onto a website and I looked up some, um, some training programs and I saw this, uh, I, you know, I wanted to put on some, I was doing it for sports performance, but also because I wanted to, I was a skinny kid. I was like 67 kilograms. I wanted to put some muscle on. I saw this guy that was this bodybuilder. I looked at his weight training program. It looked quite sensible and he was huge. He was jacked. And I was like, wow, if I could get 10% of the muscle mass gains that this guy has got, then, uh, uh, you know, then I'll be really happy with that. So I looked at his training program. I took it, I went away and I tried to implement it myself. 
And of course, what I didn't realize at that time, because I'd never heard of anabolic steroids or anything else, is that this guy uh, was taking anabolic steroids and he was doing a training program that was just basically physically impossible <laughs> for me to do. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like 20 different exercises, three to five sets of each one. Um, you know, it was taking me like an hour and a half, two hours to complete. I'd never done any strength training before. You know, I was an athletic kid. I played basketball, did lots of jumping. You know, uh, I could climb ropes. I could do all this stuff. I wasn't not strong. But what I found was after six months of this training program, I was weaker than I was when I started because I was doing overtraining. And um, I didn't actually realize that this was a thing. And so therefore, I made a huge mistake. And I remember I was in the gym. I'd done all this research. I thought I knew exactly what I was doing. And I'd come in and I uh, I'd started off when I came in, been able to do six pull-ups or eight pull-ups, what it was. And after six months, I was struggling to do three pull-ups because I was exhausted. And the guy that was like in the gym that, uh, you know, uh, I knew him. He, he didn't necessarily have a great academic background. He turned around to me and he said, Tom, you know, looks like you're pretty tired. You know, I think you need to, uh, I think you're overtraining, you need to stop. And I was like, oh my God, he's right. And I went back and I started to read about overtraining. I started to read about some other things and I realized wow, what I'm doing is, is crazy. And so I went from a training program where I was doing 20 sets of four to five, um, 20 exercises of four to five uh, uh, sets per exercise down to the next training program that implemented, which literally was four different exercises, squat, bench, pull-ups, and uh, a deadlift. And I was doing uh, no more than 20 reps total in each exercise. And that was the training program that took me from deadlifting 60 kilograms uh, to deadlift 160 kilograms in the space of just uh, around about two years. So I think this is like a huge mistake that people can make. And I think you need to be very careful about this. Be careful of gurus. Be careful of people that are touting crazy training methods because while they might look great on Instagram, that's not actually what you're doing. And if you go and look at uh, an elite level uh, athlete working in like an institute, let's say like the VIS or the EIS or, or anywhere else, their training programs are not super complicated, right? They're relatively straightforward. And, uh, and they're very simple. And you'll see that when you see Liv's program uh, in, 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 in later on. So that would be my key mistakes I've made and then also key mistakes I think people regularly make. Liv, have, uh, you've got any other mm -hmm. points to bring up? I think you guys have really covered it all. Uh, I would probably just um, say it again. Don't copy what pro athletes are doing or really any other athlete for, for that matter. You don't know who's injured. You don't know who's actually using steroids. You don't know what their goals are. You also don't know how hard they're training. I certainly found that uh, in the middle of my ADC prep, you know, doing the three programs were so exhausting for me but now that I look at the programs and I um, have actually dug some of them up and done done them in the uh, sort of lockdown isolation time they're, they're not that hard when I'm not also training five hours a day of jiu-jitsu that I was like oh how was I tired from that but um, you know if someone just tried to copy it and they might have a full-time job and they're also training full-time it would be close to impossible um, and I think the uh, actually it's not a mistake. I would post nearly every one of my workouts on Instagram as a story, and I had uh, pretty much two reasons for that. One of them was Ben coaching me over Instagram if if we couldn't do a session together, and the other one was as a physio, I wanted to actually show my patients that committing to a program. Uh, equals results so it never like people always say oh but you're an athlete or um, you're strong or you know you've got this and that no it was actually like years and years of actual consistent work and and the takeaway message from that is don't quit after two weeks you're not going to see results after two weeks you actually have to make it a long-term goal and commit to it and don't just copy 
um, whoever you might be looking up on Instagram without reasoning behind it. But I think to summarize it, the big mistakes are uh, don't lose sight of the main goal, which should be jiu-jitsu because that's what we're talking about or whatever your sport is. Um, don't look at the pro athletes and copy. Don't look at the old Eastern European block and all the bodybuilders who might have been using steroids or might be using steroids. Absolutely. And I think like this brings us to like the conclusion of most of the key questions that were asked. But I think we should finish off by giving some practical tips to people who are recreational uh, jiu-jitsu players who want to include uh, SNC in their program. So, Ben, maybe you could just start off by giving your kind of top tips for people. Sure. I think the, you know, and this is not to toot my own horn, but get a coach, getting an SNC coach, getting a professional and, you know, be that whoever it is, if they have good credentials, they have a good history of working with athletes and developing them um, and shown good results, then then hire them, pay them, for their program, pay them for their expertise. Um, Because I think the benefits, as we've discussed throughout, they're going to be able to apply a program in your specific context, help you with technique. And ideally, the way I see it, it's like a a driving instructor, is once you get a really good understanding of that yourself, you might be able to take that and go by yourself. You're not going to have your driving instructor in your car for the rest of your life. Um, So, you you know, eventually you're going to be able to go on. And if you've learned enough with your SNC coach, maybe you can go and, and write your own program or understand the basics and go and apply them in your own context. So, um, yeah, first thing first, obviously get a coach, learn the basics, learn the technique, um, and learn as much as you can about physical training. Cause that's going to set you up in a really good stead in the long term. Um, some more practical advice would be, um, do a warm up before any jujitsu session. So, um, include some S and C exercises in that. It doesn't have to be super heavy or super hard, but maybe as we've said, do some mobility before you start training do some jumping around, get your body and joints warm and ready um, before you go into drilling or, or competition. Um, and that's where, as a third point, you can sneak in some additional exercises. If you do a really good warm-up every single time you've trained, you've accumulated a certain amount of hours over the course of a year that you otherwise wouldn't have, um, or do them just straight after you train. Do them as a cool-down as such, but you can extend that out. Uh, for as long as you like. As, as I said, it's a cool down. It's after the main thing. So be practical about how you train um, and apply it specifically. Liv, do you have any tips? Um, yeah, the biggest one for me would be to stay consistent and persistent with your um, strength and conditioning, whatever your goals are for that. Uh, you definitely have to put in the time, you have to put in the effort, and it takes a long time, just like any other um, training. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is exactly the same. Um, I think what helps me practically is if I decide to do my rehab, it's it's often, or I'm, I'm talking rehab because I'm this is my physio perspective, um, it's not often the most exciting thing to do, but I think it's in my head, it's not negotiable. So if you make your um, time in the calendar, you block it out and you make it non, non-negotiable and you just go and do it no matter how you feel. Um, of course, if you have to, emergencies happen, you have you, you have things come up um, and if you do have to skip a session, um, I would say probably skip strength and conditioning and uh, still go to jiu-jitsu if you had to choose. I think, again, concentrate on what's most important and uh, the jiu-jitsu skill is probably going to get you there first. Um, And another one from an injury perspective is um, kind of what Ben was already saying, make your rehab, if you don't have time, make it incidental exercise. For example, I do my single leg stands, balance, proprioception exercising when Lockie's explaining technique. 
on the mats. You know, I might, it's pretty boring to stand on one leg and wave your arms around as rehab 10 times a day. So I do it, uh, yeah, when Lockie's explaining technique or if I'm going to get a coffee uh, and there's a red light, um, I'll, I'll stand on one leg or I'll do some calf raises or whatever it might be just to save some time. Um, and the other big thing would be just be, especially if you're new to the sport, be careful of lifting heavy, whether it's squats or deadlifts um, or any other big lift that you're doing. And then straight after that, going and doing um, jiu-jitsu where you might be inverting and putting a high stress, high compressive load on the spine. I think a lot of injuries uh, can be caused with loading your spine in one way, which might be a deadlift and then uh, putting it into full flexion and having a completely different load uh, the next hour or even within the same day. So just like any other body part, your your spine and your discs need actually time to adjust to the load. And if you're giving it two completely different sets of stimuli, um, they can actually, uh, well, it can sort of break down and, and break a little bit more um, faster, I guess, or not have the, enough time to adapt. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're probably my biggest tips. And what about you, Tom? Yeah, so if I want to give some, I'll give some practical tips around something a little bit different to what you've done, which is expectations of what you actually need to do as a, as a recreation astronaut. And actually, to be honest, these are probably kind of similar to what you would do as a performance athlete as well. But it doesn't have to be a 90-minute, two-hour training session, okay? Ben's already talked about the fact that you can break it down, do things before and after training. But if you were just doing a pure physical preparation workout, I would say that workout should be no more than one hour long, okay? Um, and if you were going to break it down, it would look something like this. Somewhere between three to five minutes of warm-up, which could include some mobility work, I think very important specifically for the spine. It could include upper, mid, and lower, uh, lower back mobility uh, type workout. Then you're probably going to want to spend around about 40 minutes for your main session, okay? If you're going much more than 40 minutes, then you're probably going to... Um, then you're probably going to start getting tired from doing the session and and also you're probably not working fast enough through it it's going to be a waste of your time if you come and see my athletes do a session they won't last 40 minutes they'll last 90 minutes but the reality is we're taking three or four maybe even five minutes between different lifts so that's a huge amount of time spent resting essentially and if you're not going to be lifting absolutely uh, crazy amounts of weight you probably don't need this uh, you probably don't need this uh, extra rest so i would restrict your main session to around about 40 minutes but do 40 minutes of focused training then i would finish with between five and ten minutes of mobility or some kind of um, recovery exercise at at the end as well and i, I think that those those three elements having a warm-up having a main session having a mobility will, will bring your session together and all of that shouldn't last more than an hour would be my my suggestion there okay so a couple of other practical tips that you can you can use um, in order to make sure that you continue to go through your program there's a couple of things i like to do one is um, there's a great iphone app probably available for android as well called seconds um, and there's uh, in this in this program it's basically it has a timer on it and so you can write your training program into this and you can go to the gym and you can press start and it will tell you, okay, three minutes for warm up. Then it can tell you the next exercise that you can put in yourself and you can go through these. I personally use this myself when I'm working out because I want to make sure that I get in and out of that gym within an hour. I don't want to end up taking my training session being 90 minutes or whatever else. And I found since I've started doing this, I've been much more focused and it's quite a nice way of uh, going through and use it. So I'll put a link to that in the description for this video so you can see the Seconds Pro app. The, the final thing that I would say as well is, remember you are doing... Uh, physical preparation to enhance your jiu-jitsu 
And um, because you are working as a recreational athlete, you don't necessarily want to put yourself at super risk. So what, and I do this even with my performance athletes, um, but I would say you, you want to keep a buffer, okay? When I say a buffer, what I mean is if you are physically capable of lifting 100 kilograms in a squat in training, as a recreational athlete, as someone that's not training for the Olympic Games or to be uh, for a, a big competition, etc., you don't necessarily have to go to that 100 kilograms. Give yourself a 10 kilogram buffer. You know, try. You don't need to lift more than let's say 90 kilograms in the in the in the back squat in 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 training. That last 10 kilograms, that's the buffer to to give you a bit of safety. Okay, so I would suggest also implementing a buffer. Um, generally, when you train, you don't have to, especially if you're doing other training sessions, you don't have to work. Uh, you don't have to kill yourself every single session. If you're just training for to look good and you're training three times a week to look good, that means you have four days to recover. So feel free to kill yourself those three sessions. Whereas if you're doing three sessions of jiu-jitsu, then three S&C sessions, you shouldn't be absolutely 100% dead at the end of all those sessions. Because if you are, you're over time, over four or five weeks, you're probably not going to recover fully. So keep some kind of buffer in your training. And don't think just because you're not dying every single session, you're not getting something from it. Um, I would say in the long run, as Liv said, it's better to be consistent and not get injured and not get overtrained that is to overtrain, have short-term uh, gains, but then have to take a few weeks or even months off training because you got injured because you were too tired or you were overdoing things. So that would be my, my key practical tips. Um, and um, I think uh, there will, if you follow those, you'll be in uh, good stead in terms of uh, implementing physical preparation into your training program. One more thing I'd like to bring up as well is um, recording and monitoring what you're actually doing. So um, definitely write down um, your program or what you've done at the gym, write down when you've done your jiu-jitsu sessions and maybe just a quick note on how you feel or especially on the days where you might be getting really tired or injured. It will not only give you a really good way to recognize your patterns where, you know, you, you might look back and go, oh, I was training really hard for three days in a row and then I got injured. Um, and you might actually start seeing patterns and knowing yourself more. And the other one would be to give it to, if you do decide to work with um, a, a specialist coach or a physiotherapist or whoever it might be, to actually show them what you've done so they have something to work with as well. Because it is sometimes really hard for people to recall exactly what happened at what time. Um, so that's another practical tip you can use. So once again, I think we've come to the end of our discussion. And now it's time to summarize the take-home messages. The first topic we discussed is how specific you need to get in what you're doing on, in the gym in order for it to translate to performance in jiu-jitsu. And here are the key take-home messages that you don't necessarily need to replicate sports movement patterns in order to get a benefit. Especially when it comes to developing strength, the more complicated the movement pattern, the lower the external load that can be applied. And this is why strength training exercises tend to be really simple. Think about things like squats, deadlift, pull-up, bench press. They're all simple movements that don't replicate sports movement patterns that you normally see. So instead of focusing on training with sports-specific movement patterns in the gym, instead what you should be looking at is developing the underpinning qualities and body parts involved. For example, make sure you use the range of motion that you need. Focus on the type of muscle contractions involved in the sport and also the magnitude of the forces involved. Also, it's important to recognize that there are some times of the year, which is usually close to competition or grading, etc., when you want to be more specific in your uh, physical preparation than others. Similarly, how specific you get might change over time as you go from being a novice through to being someone who is more experienced. The second topic we looked at is how often we should change our training program. And here the panel were in consensus that you probably don't need to change the program more than once every month. Anywhere from four to eight weeks usually makes sense. 
When starting out as a novice in strength conditioning, variation is less important than for someone who's been doing strength conditioning for a long time. And rather than changing the exercises all the time, the main thing really is to look to have some kind of progressive overload in your training. So this might mean increasing the weight slightly every two weeks or so. When it comes to big mistakes that people often make, the first one is to lose sight of what the main goal is, which is to improve jiu-jitsu, and instead let strength and conditioning become an end into itself. The second is to blindly copy what pro athletes, bodybuilders, and influencers are doing. Remember, their needs and constraints might not necessarily be the same as yours, so what you might need to do might be completely different from what they're doing. We finished off the episode with some practical tips. The first one was to get a coach, at least until you feel confident. The second was to be consistent and persistent with your training. Block out time in your diary and just do it. And the third was to be careful when doing heavy squats and deadlifts and then going straight into jiu-jitsu and inverting because you could potentially be putting your spine at risk. In terms of training expectations, for most recreational grapplers, we'd recommend training physical preparation two to three times a week for no more than an hour in each session. And that session will probably be broken down into something like five minutes of warm-up 45 minutes of the main session and then roughly 10 minutes of cool down time and consider using a timer to keep yourself on track during the workout so if you enjoyed this discussion and we'll tune in next time when we switch off focus to snc for the competitive grappler as always let us know your thoughts in the comments below and remember to subscribe to the channel and hit the bell so you get notifications whenever live and locky release new content thanks for watching and i hope to see you in the next video so that's it for this episode if you like the podcast but want to see the diagrams, you can get the full experience by searching Absolute MMA St. Kilda Melbourne on YouTube. See you in the next episode.